Let's join together as we pray. We come, Heavenly Father, to a text this morning that will cause us to think and ponder and reflect and reflect about not only what Jesus said but about ourselves and the kind of people that we are. We've just sung that we want to be gracious and humble till Jesus we see and perhaps that's my prayer as we come to the text that we might grasp what Jesus said and we might apply it to ourselves. We pray that you'd bless the things I've prepared, that we might together think deeply and carefully and move forward thankfully. And through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, it's been quite a few weeks since we last looked at Matthew's Gospel. In fact, it was the third Sunday of November last year where we left off the end of chapter 17, a text in which Jesus paid the temple tax through the coin in the mouth of the fish that he told Peter to go and catch. This miracle was just one in a long list of miracles that Jesus did in the places he went all through chapters 14 to 17 in which we've looked over. And those chapters, we've traced not only his movements, but by following the text, we the readers have been all over the place with Jesus too, watching him, listening to him and learning from him and all rightly so. After all, this is Matthew's presentation of Jesus. After all, this is Matthew's biography of Jesus, if you like, and Jesus is the main player in the book. But there are other characters in the book that we've also been watching and listening to and present with Jesus in all of those places. And that group includes the disciples, 12 in total as we know. Three of them are up on the mountain with him. Nine of them, all of them down in the valley. And then all of them presumably with him in Capernaum, although only one of them, Peter, was mentioned. And in all that has taken place, Matthew has recorded for us the response of the disciples to the things they'd been seeing and hearing. They were overawed on the mountain. They were frustrated down in the valley. They were despairing at the news that Jesus told them on their journey to Capernaum about his impending death. And now in chapter 18, the focus is upon them to begin with, although our text moves from them to consider again the words and the teaching of Jesus. Let's see how the text unfolds as we examine it this morning under these three headings. Let's first note the question the disciples had for Jesus in verse 1. Matthew 18 opens with Jesus and his disciples speaking together. 
And Mark chapter 9 tells us that they were in a house when this conversation took, took place. But the matter they discussed together was a conversation the disciples had while they're all together on the road. Ask where they're going and the answer's clear. Uh, Jesus had told them twice now that they would be heading to Jerusalem where he would be handed over to the religious leaders and tried and sentenced and crucified but would live again. Now this context is important to keep in mind because as we'll soon find out, the topic the disciples are discussing along the road is quite far removed from what might have been going through Jesus' mind. On his mind was his desire to lay down his life in death. On their minds is the issue of greatness, especially which one of them is the greatest. You couldn't have a starker contrast, could you? On the one hand, the one who has come to lay down his life in death and on the other, the twelve who are thinking for some reason that greatness was within their grasp. So out comes the question from them to Jesus in verse 1. Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now what strikes me about this straight away is the question why? Why was the topic of greatness one that so desperately needed to be addressed at this point in time? Was it because they were concerned for Jesus, remembering what he had said about his death? Something noble? Or was it less than that? Was it because back there in Capernaum, Jesus had singled out one of them for a lesson on the temple tax and that catch of the fish? with a coin in his mouth. And if that event had caused some jealousy, maybe that jealousy added some fuel to the already existing fire caused by the fact that it was Peter, James and John who had the privilege of being the three who went up in the mountain with him, leaving the other nine to battle the effects of sin down in the valley. Maybe too there was a deep-seated envy directed toward Peter, who always seemed to be first among them. It's unlikely that such a discussion on greatness would have begun with Peter. But then again, you can't rule it out either, can you? Now here Mark in his Gospel tells us that they were having that discussion privately, hoping that Jesus would not hear it. But he did. He knew what they were talking about. And we find in Mark's account that Jesus actually said to them, what are you discussing? And with some embarrassment, the disciples probably admitted to Jesus what the topic was. Matthew just picks up the story there. He picks it up with them addressing the question to Jesus rather sheepishly after they discussed it among themselves. Just to make things even clearer and a little bit worse for the twelve, let's note their reactions to the news that Jesus broke to them of his eventual suffering and death in Jerusalem. The first time he told them of this, they despaired. But the second time Jesus spoke to them about the subject, as we find in chapter 17, verses 
22 to 23, it's followed by this response. The first time they're despairing, the second time they're disputing. The first time they were sad, the second time they were arguing about superiority. This surely is a serious problem that Jesus would have noted amongst his disciples. And it's no less of a problem for us either. If there's one thing that believers have always struggled with throughout the years of church history, right up to the present day, it's this clash between what it means to belong to the kingdom on one hand and the call to have a kingdom mindset in which there is no room for greatness. And guess what? If there's any message that the world is preaching to its followers today, it is that true greatness is a self-made thing found when you follow the way of ambition to the ultimate end or when you make that fortune or achieve that goal or win that game or when you die with the most toys. Nothing like the way our Lord measures greatness. And so we're always in need, aren't we, of a corrective text like this about true greatness. Second, from verses 2 and 3, let's note the object lesson that Jesus had for the disciples. We've noted already how it came about that Jesus caught them in this discussion about greatness that the disciples wished that Jesus hadn't heard. And so they asked them, what are you, what are you talking about? Uh, Jesus entered into that dis- discussion with firmness, with gentleness and with humility rather than raging at the disciples or contradicting them or even rebuking them even though their conversation revealed just far how off the mark they were Jesus showed the kind of humility he went on to say was the mark of true greatness that is to say he showed them the answer as well as told them the answer think on that See how he dealt with them in a way that showed them true humility. He was about to teach the importance of humility and yet it was with great humility that he responded to them. And to answer their question, we also see that Jesus, the great teacher that he was, knew also the right way to respond to their question, even through the use of an object lesson on this occasion which might have been surprising for these disciples, especially the object he used in the object lesson, which is a child. Now where he laid his hands on the object in the object lesson is not told us. There were probably numerous numbers of them around him for most of the time, just as they'd been in the feeding of the 5,000 and one of them had his lunchbox to share. Yes, Jesus placed a child in front of them. A child. And he said to them while placing this child in the midst of them all, ending the dispute as he did, you want to see greatness? You want to know who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here you go. Have a look here. I've got one down in front of me. I should point to him. And as he does that, he says to them, 
Here's your measuring stick for greatness in the kingdom of God. A child. One who has nothing. No pretenses. No pride. Instead, someone who represents one at the opposite end of the scale of worldly success and, as we will see, one who has a simple, trusting faith. Now, we could reflect here for some time and note that by placing a child before them, that Jesus was teaching them that the way he measures greatness and the way the world measures greatness, well, they're worlds apart. A child is everything opposite to what the world considers great. And we don't have to look far into our own culture to see this, especially in this land where it's our sporting heroes from whichever sport you care to name, or those who can sing well, or those who have turned their one dollar into millions of dollars, or those who have suffered some health issue and overcome great adversity, they're the ones who are considered great. Not our politicians, at least not the modern day ones. But the rock stars, the sports stars, the media stars, they earn the title grace. And a child doesn't fit our definition of greatness any more than they did in Jesus' day. And yet this is his object lesson. Look here. The answer to the question was a child. But let's not misunderstand Jesus here. He's not saying that therefore adults can't be great and that only children are great. Neither is he saying that adults cannot enter the kingdom of God and that only children can. He's also not saying that all of you adults must find a way of turning back the clock and become children again or being childish in the way you approach life and in your actions. What he is saying is that greatness is found in being childlike. Childlike in the, in the sense that a child has no pretenses about them. They have no tickets on themselves. They are what they are. And childlike in the sense that a child is trustful that is being unable to fully care for themselves. They rely upon and depend upon others, especially their parents, to meet their needs. Now keep these two things in mind about a child because from these things, two things flow in what comes next. As we note thirdly, the implications Jesus drew from this object lesson. And notice we do two matters. The first is from verses 3 and 4 and it relates to how you enter the kingdom of God. Here we see how he taught them that the way you become a believer, the way you enter the kingdom involves becoming childlike in that it includes a heart change. One that changes from pride to humility. In fact, he says to his disciples something like this, unless your heart is changed, unless you move from being full of pride, thinking that you can storm the doors of the kingdom of God in your own strength, to thinking that you can't enter the kingdom of God because you have no strength, then you'll never enter the kingdom at all. If your heart is not changed, 
if you're not converted to become humble like a little child and so have a trustful humility and you'll never enter the kingdom. Jesus here touches upon something important in relation to what we understand about conversion. The heart change which he's speaking about here is the conversion of our hearts which is brought about by the Holy Spirit who breaks down our wall of pride and brings us to our knees. And the second thing that this relates to is found in verses 5 and 6 where Jesus points out that it relates to how you live in the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God, how you live in the kingdom of God. And here he says that becoming like a child will lead to genuine care of others. Genuine care. Jesus reminds us we not only need to have this childlike humility to enter the kingdom, but also this will be needed in the kingdom as a, in a, as a sign, as an indicator of God having worked a change of heart in us, especially as it relates to those who are not our equals or those who are our superiors, but to those underneath us. He teaches that true humility manifests manifests itself in our care not to cause others to stumble. Note well what Jesus says again. He says that by receiving and welcoming children in his name, this is equal to receiving and welcoming him. And likewise the reverse. If you cause such children to stumble, you are not only displeasing him, but doing in such a way will be to your eternal loss. Now make no mistake about these words. They're very strong. People have millstones tied around their necks and who are thrown into the sea are not going to make it to the emergency department. And we should stop when we come across such words. Why why does Jesus say it like that? Why does he encourage us on one hand and say, this is so good, and yet warn us on the other and saying the consequences are terrible? Why such language about eternal loss? Why is he saying these things? Well, he says these things and those in the next few verses because of the seriousness of sin. He says these things because of our propensity to overestimate our own importance and so cause others to stumble. He says these things to remind us that we're responsible for our actions and our words. He says these things because it's a serious thing to fall into sin and an even more serious thing to cause someone else to fall into sin, especially someone underneath our care. And he says these things because true humility will be seen in the way you treat the little ones of the world those who seem insignificant in the world's eyes but are precious to him. So what to conclude? Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, it would be wrong to assume from the text that the title belongs to children. And for us to conclude this morning that it's the children who are the greatest. 
That's close, but not quite it. The answer, in fact, is those who are most childlike in the sense of having the simplest of trust. They are those who may be thought of as being the greatest. But here's the irony in that. Those who are the greatest, they don't care about being the greatest. Those who are the greatest won't be boasting about it. They won't be parading it or lording it over others or parading it around or sporting a badge that says, I am the greatest. Because such people know they aren't the greatest. Such people know they're only in the kingdom of God because of grace and they've got nothing to boast about. In fact, if they could boast about anything at all, it would be this, that God accepted them as they are, broken and repentant. And they brought nothing to him but their sin. And Jesus covered all of their sin by his blood. Many years ago at a family service in my first church, one day on a whiteboard I sketched out the gospel message for the congregation. Afterwards, a dear lady from the church thanked me for it but said she wanted to point out one thing that I'd missed that she thought was important. And this is what she said. She said, it's true. We must understand the message with our hearts and believe it, sorry, with our heads and believe it with our hearts. But we can't enter the kingdom of God unless we do so on our knees, she said. Humble, repentant. And she was right. And she still is right. When you became or become a believer, you had to face up to the fact that your sin was serious, that you don't deserve anything from God because of it. The only thing you can do is repent of it and confess it. And in doing so, submit yourself to the one who says, I can and will forgive you and will save you. And he does. And here is here it's Jesus saying that this attitude of humble trustfulness is precisely the key by which the door of the kingdom of heaven is opened. And so in the kingdom of heaven, the least is the greatest. In the kingdom, the one who is the most trustful, the one who is the humble one in this sense, is the greatest in the kingdom. Something that is therefore open to all and not to a select few. It is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the very secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realise two things. One, I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and two, none whatsoever in myself. Now hear what I'm saying at this point. Humility is not defined by a long-standing inferiority complex. It does not mean you're the person who hangs your head the lowest, despising yourself with sackcloth and ashes. Maybe there is a time for sackcloth and ashes that will lead to humility. But that in itself is not humility. Humility is, as the hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. 
And so as it was for the disciples, so the application is for us. As we evaluate what real greatness is all about, remember that this is not something that Jesus just spoke of, but he showed us what it looks like. He was the king of all, but he humbled himself, as Philippians 2 said, all the way to death on a cross. He came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. And because he did that, we confess him and we worship him and we love him and we serve him as the one who surely is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the greatest of all. And so on our knees before him, we learn what greatness is about. It's about bending and stooping to become the lowest of the low and bringing everything to him. May the Lord bless us in this way. Let's pray. Lord, we are challenged this morning to think about a child, to see him in the middle of these arguing adults. Men who just heard Jesus say that he was going to Jerusalem to die. How often we can have the wrong mind in ourselves. Think we've got something important to talk about here. But it's a long, long way from having a gospel mindset and having the Lord Jesus exalted in our own hearts. Please forgive us when we have failed to humble ourselves or we have perhaps thought we are better than what we really are or even worse than that, we've looked down on others and said, well, I'm at least better than them. Please uh, grant to us this childlike humility where we come before you with nothing and yet we receive everything and then help us to live as those who truly have been converted through humility so that pride no longer has a place. Search our hearts, cleanse them, Wash them clean and fit us with the mind of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.